0: Contourcast. My name is Cat Boyd. I'm joined with my lovely co-host David Jamieson.
1: How's it going? Uh, I had a shave especially for this broadcast.
0: Did you? I washed my hair for this broadcast.
1: So um, just so our listeners know, you know, and I'm sure some of you will feel neglected because we've been away for a few weeks, but we do.
0: You've, your sound has just gone. David has laptop troubles, you see. Can you hear Yeah.
1: Right. Obviously, the fucking wiring on this is going. I don't know if this is planned obsolescence or whatever, but I have a terrible time with wires. They're always giving up on me. Uh. Anyway, what was the saying? Yeah. So we make an effort.
0: I neglected countercast.
1: Yeah, but we do make an effort: shaving, washing hair, making sure that all the wiring's working. Uh, when we get round to it.
0: I was thinking about when we last did a pod. Um and I remember I think we were talking about, you know, Boris Johnson and how he will still be prime minister in like a week's time. And here we are, quite a few weeks on from party gate. Yeah. And he's still there.
1: Yeah. And you know, I,
0: I hate to be that cow that's like, we told you, do you know what I mean? But you've got to celebrate when you do get things right because you get things wrong quite a lot.
1: Yeah, no, I know. Um Though I think we've probably got quite a good record on the big things, such as, remember when everyone was saying no deal, there's going to be a no-deal Brexit. It's a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Uh, we're right about that. I suppose we were right about the 2019 election. We're uh, right
0: about the, there not being a second referendum.
1: <laughs> we're going to be Palmer right about that. It's
0: not a price for <laughs> pain um i would love to be proved wrong on that but it's not going to happen
1: yeah but i i do so on the party gate stuff i mean look it just it had all the makings of a of a uh of a thing that wasn't going to happen that is johnson going uh right from the off right so it rapidly became a culture war issue that means it's going to die because it cultural war never really results in anything. It goes on and on and people want it to go on and on. I always have that. "Ah, It's terrible because you hate to quote George Orwell, actually 1984, in any political conversation. But that thing he says about... Yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. That thing he says about uh, the war between, you know, Eurasia and East Asia is not meant to be won. It's supposed to be continuous. The point of the war is that it continues. It was never so true of a war. I mean, it's generally not true of war. It's a stupid insight. Wars generally are meant to be won. But the cultural war is not meant to be won. It's meant to go on and on and on and on. It doesn't result in anything. Um, So, you know, it, you almost get the sense that people would almost be disappointed if Boris Johnson went. You know what I mean? So he's part of... That's built in. It's part of the economy.
0: Completely. Like, people people like to have a monster Mm. and people become so It's like Trump derangement syndrome
1: yeah and people still do this thing where they pretend that Johnson is like Trump in some way and he very obviously isn't but they need it they need it yeah they need a kind of evil other um
0: so what um what is your what's your been your biggest wrong call
1: um I, I I've obviously kind of blotted it out uh, I, remember,
0: I know what mine is
1: Go on. because
0: it haunts me all the time right so <clears throat> I wrote an article for this journal um soundings I think it's called I don't know how many people ever read it <clears throat> in 2015 I want to say like I want to say summer 2015 and what happens is like oh, I don't know how the, I don't know how this works or, you know, how this company manages its data or whatever, but I get very, very regular emails from, you know, that website academia mm. because the, the this article has been published in a journal and someone's like read it or clicked on it and it comes up and I get an email in my inbox and it says, are you cat Boyd that wrote, <clears throat> Let me tell you the title. Radical Scotland is here to stay. Ugh. Yeah, definitely my worst call.
1: Uh, come to think of it, I've got a real stinker as well. I said that uh, Remain was going to win the EU referendum, but there's an obvious reason why I'd think that, which is that I live in Scotland, where yeah, so many people Remain did win in Scotland. Yeah, um, but I, I just, I mean, I, I couldn't know the kind of English national context and the, and what was going on down there yeah. I, look at, looking back I should have been able to tell just from the fucking grim faces on the TV I mean I remember in the last couple of weeks before the referendum honestly every newsreader was stony faced about it and it's obviously they, they've been getting like a power of internal type polling telling them no this is a serious thing now Uh, And there was a real sense of panic coming from Westminster around it. So I should really have been able to tell from that. But I just, it's hard to tell because I just thought, well, is that just kind of like project fear or whatever? Is that just part of the, oh, there's a serious danger here. And then we'll wake up and find out that Remain won by like several percentage points and it was never really in contention. Um, But there you go. It It
0: really do come true. (laughs)
1: dreams really do come true that was on my birthday as well
0: oh what a gift what a gift um because we're gonna we're gonna do a podcast aren't we for the patreon which is um you and i exposing the three worst political takes yeah you've ever had yeah not things that we got wrong but just the three worst positions we have ever held on a on a topic
1: yeah yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Actually, I think it'll be interesting, um, because you know, I mean, oh,
0: exactly. I... Can you wiggle your wire, as it were?
1: <laughs> I do a sound.
0: exactly Oh fuck. Try now. Who's that? Yeah, it's better
1: Uh, no, I'm looking forward to that, um, because I have had some howling positions. I'm just trying not to go into it right now. I just thought of one that's quite funny.
0: It just gives us a taster.
1: Um, well, I think there was a period. I mean, you've got to remember, I was one of these people who was getting sent around England to various demonstrations against the EDL and the BNP. <laughs> so the real possibility of a fascist dictatorship in Britain you know what I mean like in between the years sort of I don't know 2006 to about 2000 to 2012 was probably you know up there um
0: that, that's funny like that I think that that's slightly different right because yeah. you were in a you were in a an organization that sent you to do these tasks
1: yeah, but but you know, like I mean, you get you you got so much literature thrown at you on the on the dangers of of fascism. That you, do you know what I mean? You started, but do you know it's one of those weird things? It's like you started to think, "Oh my god!" Like off the back of this financial crisis, maybe the BNP will come to power. Um, but there's always a part of you that's like, there's a certain unreality to all this. Yeah, um, but that's still a widespread thing. On the left i mean that's still like uh it's one of the fear of the far right is uh is a major pillar of kind of modern leftism um a, a, a lot of what the modern left says doesn't make a great deal of sense unless you understand that there are various apocalyptic scenarios underpinning it all so fascist dictatorship um apocalyptic climate change and so on um it helps explain a lot of the kind of moral urgency that surrounds the left, despite the fact that it has very little agency.
0: Yeah, I mean, Paul Mason's obviously got that book, "How to Stop Fascism," which yeah. is a classic of that, like that type of the instigation of a moral panic um, that leads to badly made so-called pragmatic decision making so, I mean it makes people like lose their heads
1: one of the curses of of the modern liberal left in particular is the desperate search for a cause because the working class remains at such a low ebb and the idea of the socialist left having as its principal aim socialism is, is, is sort of banished by the fact of the weakness of the of the working class um what you tend to find is there's a constant and desperate search for a cause, a sort of cause de jour, and it always leads people to the right. So that was famously the case for Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens became a militant kind of anti-Muslim, anti-jihadi because he was bored, and he almost, you know, he said as much. You know, I, I, there's interviews where he says things like, "Look, if there was a mass workers' movement, I'd support it, but there isn't," and so. The, the last force for social progress is the U.S. military, is the U.S. Air Force. You know, he'd say as much. He was desperate for an enemy. He was desperate for a reactionary enemy to fight. Liberal leftists often are. Um, and, you know, the working class were the god who failed. Uh, and that meant he, need to go, he needed to go and find another agency, and he found one in, in the imperial establishment. And that's the same trajectory that a lot of people on the left will ultimately find themselves on if they keep doing this, if they keep needing to be in a colossal civilizational struggle against reactionary evil, it will lead them time and again back to the establishment. Because they are the only people at the moment with the financial and military and state power to fight reaction. And that's just what's going on all over. I mean, Paul Mason's in Kiev right now, (laughs) desperate for a fight with putin he's desperate for a, a colossal civilizational conf- confrontation with reactionary evil um, and he'll he he wants it so badly and he needs it so badly he needs to be part of history he needs to have a great cause so much that he'd even want a war to <laughs> to break out a war that would rapidly um <clears throat> you know ukraine would suffer terribly uh, in in that confrontation quite quickly, as would ethnic Russians and Russian speakers in the east of the country. But it's a price worth paying for there to be this showdown between the forces of, this kind of Manichian showdown between the forces of light and the, and the forces of darkness, um, because that satisfies a certain need that a lot of kind of intellectuals, I'm using that in the broadest sense, members of the intelligentsia feel the need to have that confrontation and the tragedy of the modern left is that that's not a fight presently that is largely carried out between the working class and its class enemies and the state and so on uh, things could be very different if, if that were the case but yeah short of that the intelligentsia will go off in these missionary incursions into state violence um it's very similar to what you see in like Canada and stuff as well why so many intellectuals back the state cracking down on on the truckers by freezing their assets and destroying their businesses and so on um yeah it's just another incursion into state salvation from fascist evil
0: yeah what was that I was reading recently about um the like it was I was reading something about lockdown about how, in the States, there were groups of anarchists, anarchists, (laughs) uh, demanding that the government Mm. imposes a lockdown. Yeah. I mean, that's through the fucking looking glass stuff.
1: Yeah. Uh, I,
0: I, I do really worry about this tendency that has emerged really strongly. It's been there for a long time, but particularly during the pandemic for the liberal left, to rely and like look to the state for safety, like and that be- that being like a left wing or socialist position is that the state keeps you safe and mm. it's about like protecting the people. I think all of that is bullshit. I don't think that that's it. A- there's anything left wing about that, like all of the stuff around, <clears throat> you know, people what. <laughs> was the the line I heard recently was oh but you know the people started locking themselves down before the government imposed lockdown and that was out that was because they wanted to protect the most vulnerable
1: yeah like
0: that is that's just not what happened like I think people were frightened do you know what I mean I think that people like stopped going out because they were really worried about what was going to happen but the idea that like, you know, protection of the most vulnerable, this collectivist impulse to all be vaccinated are inherently left wing is incorrect. The ruling class has always appealed to collectivism, whether it's a war or a pandemic. Do you know what I mean? This is not just saying it's the collective versus the individual doesn't make sense.
1: No, of course not. And I think if people were honest, <clears throat> we have an article coming up on, on content. Uh, arguing this and I think it's very true I mean I didn't I I abided by all the kind of lockdown rules and and stuff um principally because just out of a general mood of conformity I mean it was uh it was easier for me to let other people think for me I'm not even like terribly ashamed about that I mean that's how we live our lives most of the time most of the time I
0: politeness isn't it
1: yeah, like and I it, and
0: don't it, want to get into like a confrontation with someone.
1: Yeah, I don't want to get into a confrontation. Also, just couldn't be bothered wasting my time on confrontations over issues like wearing a mask in a shop. I just I, I just can't be bothered. Like, uh, I, my, my attitude throughout most of lockdown was I want my life to continue in as undisturbed a way as possible during this period. And the easiest way for me to do that is just to broadly comply with the things that are asked of me, right? It's not, you don't even need some threat of like incarceration or something like that. It's just, it's just a question of making your life easier. And that by the way is why most people comply with most things at any given point in history. It's not even like, you know, I mean, I suppose there is a degree of fear, but I didn't actually feel a great deal of fear during the the pandemic. I just thought, look, official society is going to demand a series of things from me. I will comply because I'm the type of person who does. Um, and it's, and you know, it's, it's to, to an extent to avoid the stigma of being one of the people who doesn't comply. But in the largest measure, it was just the easiest thing to do. It was just a lazy option. It was just the, the route of least resistance.
0: Yeah. I mean, I suppose, I mean, specifically the fear thing is like in relation to the people started to lock themselves down. Like people just stayed at home because they were freaking out. Everyone was freaking out. Like, like do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, we've gone from like, oh wow, there's this, this thing happening in China that's a bit like that film Contagion. To, <laughs> oh fuck, like this is there's now like daily press briefings on it. And um, so yeah, everyone was freaking out. I think that people stayed at home just because they were they were they were worried about what was going to happen to their like immediate family or themselves or their friends or whatever. Um, And people started to do that just like out of, I I think caution, but caution isn't solidarity,
1: you know? No. But
0: you're right about like, like the compliance and conformity thing. Like if I'm being perfectly honest, do I think that maybe in 20 years time, they'll be like, here, that vaccine there might be a side effect that no, we didn't mm-hmm. foresee. Um, do I think that might happen? I think it might. Do you know what I mean? It was it was really quick. Um, you know, I've, I'm vaccinated. I'll take all the vaccinations just because it, makes, because it makes life fucking easier. Do you know what I mean? But like, it's that sort of. You're right. It's what is just going to make my life be the least way disturbed during this incredibly disturbing period. So I'll just, I mean, I'll get vaccinated. Do I sympathize and empathize with people who don't want to get vaccinated? Of course. Like, I think I get it. Like, I understand why people are skeptical or cynical about it. It doesn't make them reactionary.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I, I routinely take all medical advice. I, you know love I, mean? medical advice. I love taking
0: There's medical advice. There's always something medically wrong with me.
1: Yeah. I
0: always have some kind of medical condition and I will take any medical advice
1: um but let's i mean that there are loads of reasons why people don't don't trust the medical system i mean just take for one example right look at the that mesh implant stuff right horrific horrific now they were just people who did what i did they took the advice that the doctor gave them and and, and now they have all kinds of problems often for the rest of their lives um but there's been a thousand scandals like that right because it's the medical industry it's not it's not science right it's just it's another industry like all the other industries the people who make the mesh implants and the drugs and the vaccines and so on they're about as reliable as people who make the cars the cars that often you know like go on fire spontaneously and kill everyone inside them it's an industry right it's their
0: horrible new documentary about boeing
1: Hmm. I've not seen this, but it sounds have, really good. I am
0: not watching that man. I'm <laughs> to get on a short flight as it is.
1: Um, yeah. So I mean it's just it's one industry among many others. Like there's no need for this mystification around it. The people who are involved in that industry are there principally to make money. Um, and so there's no great reason why people would give it any more um trust than than anything else.
0: Um i mean i I agree. um there was something I was gonna say there, and my mind just went totally blank. something about vaccines and why people don't try oh, yeah, that's what it was. it was <laughs> what what's getting at me, and I think is quite this is what I mean is that the pandemic has really exposed this because it's been happening for a while. but since when did it become a left wing position to back? governments big pharma and like tech giants Mm. like since when did it become like a left-wing position to be like governments should seize the assets of ordinary people who are protesting big (laughs) big tech should you know censor views that you know you might not agree with might be conspiratorial like big tech should absolutely intervene there and we should trust big pharma without question these are these have been happening like for a while now but compared to like when i first got involved in politics these were the <laughs> these were the three things that you know people had huge suspicions about
1: and what's strange is that countercultural distrust of these institutions has become the characteristic of the right Right, I mean, I say the right. I mean, is it you know what I mean? It's like, but it. Do it anymore. I don't know, but it, but for example, I mean, there are people who I like follow on social media. Um, who in the time I've been on there have moved from the left to this more incoate kind of position, and have taken their suspicion of big agribusiness, that's another thing. Like, like the, the right, if, if that's what we're calling, kind of right-wing liberalism is now really into things like opposing GM crops and stuff. Things that used to be...
0: It used to be like every freak in a left-wing meeting was banging on about bloody GM crops. No, I know. of people in planet, David, I know.
1: So that stuff has kind of migrated uh, to the right. And then on the left you have this weird kind of securitarian impulse, which is like we need these powerful institutions to cleanse society, to cleanse the people uh, of their various ugly and ignorant and dangerous characteristics. Do um, you know on the truckers thing? Someone said to me the other day, oh, "What, what you, you know? I mean, it's it's become. I mean, it's kind of George Bush type. I mean, do you remember the War on Terror? You're either with us." You're with the terrorists, right? Um, that's exactly the language now about various supposed, real and imagined far right threats. So, the the truckers in Canada. Someone said, "If you're not for this state repression, you're with them. You're with the okay, <laughs> you're okay. with the truckers, right?"
0: This is, this is where I'm at now. Okay, if if that's the position, then I would rather be with the truckers.
1: I mean if you yeah i mean if you uh if if you're gonna put a gun to my head and say you have to be with this this Tristle group who of- are
0: the truckers, which one
1: uh but i mean the the trucker protests, right of which I have to say i'm I'm quite ignorant, I don't really know or understand the situation now, but they do at least oppose vaccine mandates, and I agree with that, uh they are being persecuted by the state. And I disagree with that. If I was in the NDP, I was thinking about this the other day, right? If you are, so the, in, in the Canadian political system, there's the shitty liberal party that's led by blackface Justin Trudeau. Um, <laughs> there's the conservative party, which I've been, I've I would, I would tried to watch a couple of debates in the Canadian parliament about this and it's fucking shit. I mean, I did actually feel a certain kinship. There are many Scots living in Canada, of course, with Canada, because I was like, here, your parliament's shit. Like, our parliament is shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, the standard of debates is terrible. They are shit at politics, right, in that parliament. Um, So there's the Liberal Party, the Tory party, and then there's the NDP, which I think is a kind of quasi-abortive attempt to create a social democratic party in Canada but it's just lib central from what i can see um i think the leader's called Jagmeet Singh and he's just a total liberal and he seems to be there just to provide left cover for the for the liberal party for the governing party also like in the scottish parliament uh and he was it was fucking shit if i was in a party that was said it was social democratic in canada i would I think at a bare minimum, go down to that protest and see what people were saying and see if you could establish common, common ground. At a minimum. I just I, that, that seems to be an impulse in left-wing politics which has disappeared. Apart from anything else, I'd be fascinated to, to go down and witness the phenomenon and to try and see firsthand who are the elements that compose the protest, what are their ideas. I'm absolutely certain that you'd find all kinds of eccentric attitudes and, and political a- ideas and all mixed in together there that's that's what public protest i think is going to increasingly look like i mean that's what the yellow vest was like in france for example i you just i think i think there needs to be a discussion about well how would you relate to that right the
0: the the, the, the question of how do you relate to that has already been answered in recent times. And it's the example that I have used loads, which was Greece. Like mm. remember, Greece actually had like a, a very dangerous and organized far right. Like the Golden yeah. Dawn were actually like-
1: A fairly rare example of a real yeah, fascist movement. A, re- yeah.
0: a real threat, like in a country that has like history of, do you know what I mean? like
1: Dictatorship, and yeah.
0: So a real, do you know i mean you're right a real threat so when the crisis starts to bite in greece and there are these you know there's the um the austerity programs from the the troika and people's like living standards start to like erode and there's this huge like anti-german like quite reactionary like i saw some of it like <laughs> in Syntagma Square in Athens you'd have like the burning of German flags the burning of EU flags like lot and the symbol of the those like occupations m- most of the time was the Greek national flag yeah and there was like a real edginess to it of like the, it, it had a an aesthetic ugliness mm. like and a a danger to it like this like you have the Golden Donner in and around it, no doubt, antagonizing, you know, no doubt like playing a part in it. You have these symbols of like the rise in nationalism, you know, the burning of <laughs> national flags and um, the raising of your own national standard, like that, that kind of stuff. But the, the left in Greece are also incredibly organized and they made direct interventions. Mm-hmm. that situation they didn't do this thing which is like corroding the political activism and discourse in the anglosphere which is a fucking urban finger wagon did they go oh see well actually like that's that that's wrong you shouldn't be doing that and um, that's reactionary or look at a mass of protest and see groups of people with golden dawn and say these people are reactionary a lost cause the left Mm -hmm. intervened into those movements and obviously Syriza had a very tragic end but the the intervention that was made created this huge opportunity for the populist left and that's what's missing now is that left populism is dead so there is there aren't um, left populist groups aren't left populist movements that are intervening in these These types
1: of situations, it's only the populist right yeah, and people forget i mean it's so often forgotten um cities cities that were actually in coalition with a right wing, a hard right wing party, uh, a small kind of splinter from new democracy, you were like a nationalist political party, so exactly you you have a situation where there's a serious fascist threat, and the main well, they we said they were a radical left party. But like, went into, so went, like
0: at that point, like before Syntagma Square and the occupations, they were on like 0.4% of the vote. They were fucking nothing. They
1: pulled yeah.
0: themselves out of the movements on the street.
1: Yeah. and I, but So, I mean, I just, I just, I look at that situation and I, that is the future, I think. If you think, seriously believe that the, the next 10 years are going to be dominated by street protests where everyone's carrying a red flag, you're absolutely kidding yourself. And if that's your condition uh before entry into the political field, you're fucked <laughs> because it's not it's not gonna happen. And you're just leaving the 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 playing field wide open to the most kind of bug-eyed right wing forces, right? I mean, they'll be the only people there to kind of shape the situation. It was so like again, like I mean. This isn't new. I mean, there were people saying you gotta stay away from those yellow vest protests because the Front National, or whatever they're called now, are, are trying to intervene into it. If Marine Le Pen's trying to intervene into it, then you'd better try and fucking intervene into it. Because her leading that movement is a disaster. <laughs> you know, and it didn't happen in the end. Um, the, the yellow vests basically just threw out the far right out of the movement, right? You've got to have a bit more trust in people. Um Totally. But, like
0: you have to have more trust in people and start treating them like adults who can, do you know what I mean, read and verbalise things and have contradictory thoughts. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Rather than like, and this is for both sides of the culture war, like, rather than seeing people as all, like, brainwashed sheep. I mean, people I'm sure would listen to what you and I are saying about just getting vaccinated because we want an easy life and be like, nah, sheeple. Mm. Um, but it's the same for, like, you know, the other side of the culture war who think that you know, people who aren't like card-carrying left-wing activists with all of the usual caveats in their Twitter bio um, are are reactionary. Like life is more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And fundamentally, it's a point that just I keep thinking over and over again these days. Politics is not or should not be if you're a socialist. Politics should not be a struggle between the left and the right. And that's just fundamentally not what it is. It's a It's, it's a, a struggle between um, essentially social classes, right? And <laughs> their class, even when they say they're left-wing, like practically all centrist politicians now say they are, even when they say that, they are the enemy regardless. And they're just as much the enemy as an element of the ruling class that says it's right-wing and also typically isn't do you know what i mean he's like not real categories at the top of society um there aren't really that many social conservatives in charge in in western uh, countries anyway uh, and there aren't any kind of left-wingers in charge in western countries either that's just not how how social class works um and the fundamental divisions in society aren't between people on those on that basis and the flag that is going to be flown in national in, in, in movements around the world in the next 10 years will be the national flag, because the people at the present period don't have a different flag. They don't have a flag right now that, that distinguishes their position. And it's in the nature of democracy that people try and claim the national good as their own political position. Why wouldn't it be? Um, so anyway, yeah. Reminds me, um,
0: during the 2014 referendum... And the lead up to that, like I remember going on an early March for Independence, maybe twenty twelve in Edinburgh, and being like, "What the fuck am I doing here?" Because there were men dressed in like battle reenactment gear, all tires everywhere, and I was like, "What is what is this?" And then do you know what I mean? Like the, learning that you you can actually like engage with loads of people there as long as you are like not judging them for you know not be dismissing them as nationalists or as ordinary people who have you know been seduced by nationalism yeah. <laughs> that's the other classic and the, the left the left wing no campaign do you remember that one that was called socialism first and it had like a little red badge
1: yeah like
0: how, how, how many
1: My flag is the red flag, not the salt tower. Cool story. Cool story, (laughs)
0: mate.
1: Do you know, there's one last, I mean, on that, the thing that I always thought was slightly pathetic was when people said um, these independence marches, when those were still a thing before they died of fucking, of just, of recognition that the second independence referendum isn't coming. Um, you know, they'd sometimes fall on May Day. And it was like people saying things like, Why don't these people recognize that May Day is the workers' day? It's not a uh, Scottish Independence Day. And of course, the Scottish Independence March would be 20 or 30 times the size of the May Day demonstration that was, no offense, half made up of like trade union officials and, <laughs> and academics, right? guilty as charged Uh, and you just think well uh there's a much bigger people's march taking place that can probably more authentically describe itself as a people's march than this you know 300 middle class people uh marching with the red flag the one true flag of the worker uh and all this kind of shite um, but I just thought, yeah, I mean, well, the, the writing's on the wall, isn't it? I mean, that tells you something. It tells you something. that there's a large, essentially left-wing march taking place down the road uh, under a saltire. And at the moment, they don't associate their interests with the Mayday March. And there are, there are reasons... You're there. I can hear you. No, I can't hear you anymore. You hear me?
0: Yeah, I can hear you.
1: Me and technology I have a curse that follows you me
0: around. You have a curse. You
1: do. Right. What? What? I what? Know, should... There
0: was. There I've remembered the article that I was talking about about like anarchists, um, protesting in favour of it wasn't locked. It was mask mandates. I think. And mm. um, it was. Uh, it was a Freddie De Boer piece. Mm. Which uh, maybe I'll like, I'll tweet it later because it was great because it. It's, it's on what we're talking about which is he calls it definitional collapse did you read this yeah like this definitional collapse where nothing means anything anymore and um, I that I've been feeling that for quite some time there was a I think it was an image that you shared which was a poster and um, maybe from Govan Hill
1: oh yeah yeah
0: yeah um, and it was about engagement, something like community power building in the Roma community. And it had a young girl with a megaphone and it was advertising a program um, for young people in the Roma community between like 18 and 24 to get involved in community power building. Mm-hmm. And on the poster with this girl with the megaphone, it had the words um, resistance, solidarity. To, like stuff like that and how? it and you look at the bottom and it says funded by the scottish government and i'm just like there's this the, these words have lost meaning
1: yeah that's right so this the government is funding resistance to what i mean to the government like no absolutely like that's become like a dominant aesthetic for center-left governments not just here but like around the world and it should Um, be
0: treated with suspicion because things like that are like they switch like on a on a dime for want of a better word the example that freddie deborah uses is is like the one of um like vaccine skepticism has now very clearly in the united states at least being coded as right wing i say it's Mm. coded as right wing most places in the west right Mm -hmm. um it's, it's very much like if you're a vaccine skeptic, you're right wing, you're reactionary. But in the um, US presidential election, vac- vaccine skepticism was coded as left wing because it was used by Biden um, and Harris to like attack Trump as a political opponent. So yeah. They- like there's something wrong with this vaccine and it may not be effective It's been rushed through it's do you know what i mean dodgy vaccine is what they were running mm. so it was like coded as like left or like democrat i suppose is probably a better way of of expressing it so these definitions like unlike like they, they switch on a dime depending on like which interest is pursuing them like which side of part of the elite is pursuing them
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, even that, I mean, today, it's just not true that it's predominantly a right-wing thing. If you look at the statistics for who, and it's small numbers of people in this country anyway, I mean, at, by this point, I think something like 7% of people haven't been vaccinated, right, in Britain. In America, it's, it's a somewhat more substantial phenomenon. But the people who are not taking the vaccine are overwhelmingly like African-Americans and stuff like that. That is people who don't trust the state and around the world. I mean, this isn't a new thing either. If you look at countries where um, UN vaccine um, programs aren't taken up, it's overwhelmingly countries that have been at the wrong end of Western foreign policy, right? Because they're like, why does this white man want to put this injection in me? I mean, it's, it's, it's a no brainer. They, of course, that kind of, you know, so like in Afghanistan, there are whole movements against vaccine uptake, tragically, because especially since we're now starving Afghanistan to death, America has um, robbed the country's central bank, Uh, loads of people are going to die from preventable diseases. Um, But that's worsened by the fact that no one trusts the international institutions enough to take their medicines for obvious reasons because they've been brutally mistreated for generations and they don't trust anything that comes from a, from a position of authority. And so,
0: un- Understandably so. I mean, yeah. the last thing I'll say on this is, see, when I'm talking to people who are not in political circles, like just n- <laughs> normal people who are not like freaks and geeks like us, and they express some distrust in the state, or tech, or pharma, or whatever it is, or their industry, I see an opportunity. I don't see, like, oh, God, this person's right-wing and I want to stop talking to them. It's an opportunity to have a discussion with somebody hmm. about politics, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Um, speaking of NATO's 20-year occupation, a little segue into the build-up to war or not, perhaps, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Stuart MacDonald, that brave soldier for Western values and liberalism and democracy who'd never lift a finger or put himself in danger to fight for these things, uh, has penned a wonderful article in The Scotsman uh, where he fails to mention any... Of the actual military engagements of NATO, such as the bombing of Libya or the 20-year occupation of Afghanistan, so that he can continue to argue that NATO is a purely defensive alliance. And I've seen loads of people say this in the last few days, NATO is a purely defensive alliance. And a lot of the time, right, it's, do you know that meme of it's kind of like a middle-aged soy boy, right, and they've got, this is why I actually shaved for this podcast, because I'm afraid of looking at like, like that guy. He's bald and he has one of those yeah. sort of un yeah untidy but sparse stubbly beards, right? Uh, and he's going and he's pointing at a thing in the background, right? There's been a lot of that going on, but with people pointing at the idea that NATO was a purely defensive alliance. Saying it like they're introducing to you This is the thing I find especially annoying about liberals. Saying it like they're educating you about something. Oh, you fool. So I saw loads of responses to this to a post that Stop the War did, where they demonstrated uh, NATO's eastward expansion towards the borders of Russia in the last uh, three decades. And there were people just retweeting that, being like, you idiots, it's a defensive alliance, right? Anyone who says that hasn't got a fucking clue what they're talking about not the first clue um, the, we weren't defending any NATO member for 20 years in Afghanistan. The two biggest engagements that NATO has ever involved itself in, uh, two most important for, for world developments, were in Asia and Africa. And there was no threat to any NATO member going on at all. It is a foreign expeditionary force for attacking countries. That is what NATO is for is for coordinating the Western alliance in attacking countries far, far away from where we live. NATO, if, uh, Ru- and here's the thing, if Russia did invade Ukraine, it's very unlikely that NATO will attack Russia because NATO's not for that. It's not for <laughs> war in Europe. It's for war in Africa and Asia, right? But I don't mean in saying that to to detract from the reality that eventually war in Europe is a real possibility and that NATO would of course be one of the major combatants in that, um, in that situation. But the level of idiocy that surrounds this question is something to behold. And it, it just reminds you as well, how fucking like, I don't know, dopamine deprived people's brains are or whatever, that they can't remember a thing that happened like four months ago we can't do you know it's, it's so it's such a weird thing right and i remember you know putting out articles and stuff at the time of the afghan withdrawal and i thought i need to get all this shit out right now because next week no one will give a fuck and here we are four months later and people have forgotten that afghanistan even exists do you remember all those kind of like ngo people saying stop telling us what you think about the war in afghanistan and send to the voices of afghan women right well, today, the Afghan women are saying, please don't steal our money and starve us to death. That, with one voice, <laughs> Afghanistan, Taliban, or you know, opposition to Taliban are all saying the exact same thing. The thing we fear most is dying of starvation because you have broken our country. Uh, and what a surprise. Nobody gives a shit. In the, in the, in the, in the weeks after the collapse of the Kabul dictatorship, right, a stream of ministers were brought on to BBC programmes, uh, including onto to Stephen Sacker's Hard Talk, which is supposed to be this kind of like interview format where you put the really hard and challenging questions to mostly kind of ministers and foreign governments. And they had all these Afghan ministers on and all the questions were like that, on a scale of 10 to a million, how badly have you been treated? Do you know what I mean? Like, how sad is it that the West left Afghanistan? Uh, These interviews have all dried up now because they're saying give us our money back Uh, and the uniform answer will be no. But nobody gives a shit. And not only have people completely forgotten that this disaster is unfolding in Afghanistan, they've completely forgotten that the culprit was NATO. Now that they think NATO is our shield against, uh, against Russian aggression, uh, and it stinks. I mean, uh, first big
0: question for me, you know, in as someone who lives in Scotland is, I want to know how much Stuart MacDonald has been lobbied <laughs> on these things, because this has been ramping up for quite a while. Um, I don't know what his previous interest um, was in international relations um, or his, you know, previous encounters were with NATO or whatever. But since being elected and appointed the, uh, what is it, Shadow Defence spokesman, mm. um, his rhetoric on NATO is, um, I mean, bordering on deranged.
1: Yeah, I know. These I suspect... These
0: like, they, they are so out of context. They don't, I don't think that they fit with, I mean, not a member of the SNP, but any of that tradition. No. It is a complete lack of understanding of all geopolitics. NATO is the project of America in Europe. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's what this is. It's an American expansionist project in Europe.
1: Yeah, of course it is. And, um, I mean, look, no one will be surprised when Stuart MacDonald finally gets a job in NATO. Like, it's a decent job, you know what I mean? There's a bit of money, a bit of prestige, you don't really have to do any work. It's endless kind of dinner parties around America and, and, uh, and Europe. That's obvious that that's going to happen. Uh, and it's a complete, like, democratic travesty. Uh, he's, I mean, it's shameless. I mean, he's almost a kind of monument to the decline of democratic life. This is someone who's completely detached from the interests of his constituents, uh, who is just riding a gravy train and would ride it into a war he'd never fight. And not only is he too cowardly to fight in any of these wars, uh, he is too cowardly even to stand up for the record of NATO. And they don't like to stand they don't like to talk about their real records like these organizations don't do that um it, that article i mean this is the other thing right that is state propaganda if you read the article right go to the scotsman it's just a list of platitudes about things like it, it's almost this level of babyish language right isn't the world a better place when we all work together that's what it says for like a thousand words. It just says that over and over again. It doesn't mention any of the actual wars. When a, a, the newspapers in this country, like, if you receive an article like that from a politician who will probably one day be a NATO official, send it back. I say, I, I'm sorry, there's no argument here. You're not saying anything. I'm not publishing this piece of dog shit. It's like a NATO press release. Don't publish it, <laughs> it has no merit. Where, where is in Scotland
0: the cross examination of Stuart Macdonald's position? So Irma's like, you know, the MP who is you know part of that SNP group who is talking in defence, who's publishing articles in national newspapers. Where is the cross examination of what he is saying? It's nowhere. I don't see him getting grilled on television or radio about NATO's record. What Never is happened. what is going on? This honestly, it's a really good example of the state that
1: Scotland is in. I would, I'll did, say this again. When, right? did
0: you, when did the NATO U-turn happen? 2012. Yeah. So in 10 years, this has gone from being an actual debate in Scottish political life to uh unashamed <laughs> cheerleading for NATO.
1: Yeah, and, and look, what I'm going to say now could be characterized as mean. But part of the problem with the media is stupidity, right? Seeing see the, in the Sunday papers, I could point you to a thousand recipes for biscuits. I could point you to a thousand culture war stupidity arguments, a thousand like, stupid little lifestyle pieces about people's miserable little sex lives, about what car you should buy, about, you know, actually, I was kind of thinking about this in connection to that Nevada media sex lives of the uh, of the left <laughs> uh, series, right? And it's articles about things like, how can I be an ethical John? You know what I mean? Like, that is very much the tone of the modern media in general, though, right? But none of these fucking idiots knows what NATO is. Because to know about something like that, you need to engage with questions that these people find quite dry, like diplomacy and war. You know what I mean? Like that's just not, it's just not as much fun as as how can I be an ethical John? And how can I I bake some cookies that uh, are just like the ones they have in America, right? Um, and
0: john i'm sorry i can't i can't i can't deal with that
1: there's an article in that series <laughs> it's like um oh do you know it's always the scolding attitude as well it's like that oh the left says it cares about sex workers um but that's not enough you also need to know how to like treat a sex worker right and it's like oh, oh jesus oh, christ man
0: that absolutely gives me the book. Sorry, I
1: think Connor should have uh, a series about sex with articles including Don't Do It. <laughs> <laughs> You're gross. I just <laughs> wrong.
0: I want to say right now that the left needs to stop talking about sex.
1: Matt, what is want,
0: let's just talk about NATO, let's just talk about imperialism, no, right? I know. Let's just talk about working class agency. Keep your fucking
1: willy out of it.
0: Fucking totally. Stop talking about it.
1: Back into your fucking trousers. It's a private fucking personal matter. Stop. um, It's like, see on the left today, you cannot start up a conversation about big issues. The European Union, NATO you know, the, the the tendency to crisis in the capitalist economy, right? Without someone putting up the hand and going, uh, excuse me, um, piss, poo, welly, vagina. <laughs> We're not talking about the things that are actually important to me. Uh, people are obsessed with their fucking genitals. Stop talking about it. Please their genitals, stop. other
0: people's genitals, genital contact, it's fucking wrap it. That is... <laughs> Awful. I mean,
1: what is 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 uh, is the left just chronically undersexed? That is that is like my impression. People who talk about sex all the time aren't having any.
0: Totally, it's like that. I mean, that guy at school that's always banging on about shagging. Do you know what I mean? It's like so cringe. Stop (laughs) talking about it. It's 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 weird.
1: Every class had that one guy who's like. Going to Magaluf in six months, and he was like, ah, "That's right, lads, Shag-a-loof. Uh <laughs> I'll be having, I'll having all the buds in Shagaloof. And it was always a guy who's like, "You're not getting anything in Shagaloof, mate." Um, no, that is that is disgusting. But anyway, like who who <laughs> politics? Yeah, who would grill uh, Stuart McDonald on NATO I just want see? to
0: know, as well as like how frequently and often has Stuart McDonald met with you know interested parties in pursuing that agenda, um, is let's take a scientific approach to this. Look at NATO's record and tell me why anyone in their right mind would think that. NATO forces in the Ukraine would solve any of the problems of Ukrainian self-determination. Yeah. Show me the evidence. And honest to God, right, because this happened to me recently, um, was when I was talking about Blair's knighthood on The Nine. Um, It was, uh, what's that guy's name again?
1: John McTernan.
0: Yeah. So John McTernan was on with me. And he was talking about like Blair's legacy and you know, all, all the, the great things about it. And of course he raised like the, <laughs> the specter of the, the liberal sort of like good war in Kosovo. And it, it see when liberals like think that they've hit you with that Trump card of, oh, well, you know, what about Kosovo? They have completely rewritten what happened in Kosovo. like the the violent reprisals against the losing side Mm. are huge right so let's not fucking sugarcoat it like it's not like nato went in or like you know trips went in and sorted everything out and it was all it was all fine and that was a great example and now we can keep talking about that as like a justification for this type of military expansionism by what is still the biggest military force in the world no other country comes close to American military spending and power. Uh, this, I, do you know what I mean? I want, I want an answer of show me the evidence, right? Like actually present to me your case. Yeah. Of why this is going to help Ukrainian self-determination.
1: But absolute, the, the the left, so-
0: by the way, a lot of the left have lost the head on this. Yeah. The amount of, Tweets I've seen that just like have that tone of you know neither Washington nor Moscow we don't take a side but actually we're kind of back in Washington here. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, and I see this as part of the domino effect of the defeat of certain arguments on the left about imperialism and about American power. and um, The similar things have happened with uh, Palestine, for example. Do you know what I mean? Like that argument. Um, has been really obliterated about Palestine solidarity. Other arguments about imperialism, same. This is a good example of like how much ground has been lost over the last 20 years.
1: Yeah, and a part of it as well is, this, is just the kind of general mood of narcissism, right? So it's like, ultimately, what a lot of people want to achieve when they talk about foreign policy issues, which they broadly don't care about anyway, Is just to be seen to take the most ethical position. Uh, And the most ethical position is the one that leaves you blameless in any situation. So the easiest thing to do is just say, Well, I think all the actors in this are bad. And then you've washed your hands of it and you can just walk away. uh, And you don't need to worry about any of the difficult questions um, that arise from this situation. And you can just go back to biscuits and ethical john hood uh, sorry i need to stop bringing things back to that um but i so i mean it's, it's going to be interesting i mean i my general view on this i mean you can't the the the, the spin out there the propaganda is unbelievable i mean it is just pounding the airwaves um and as always in this situation, it amuses me to flick between like RT and the BBC. And if you think there's a significant difference between them, there isn't. I mean, they're both pushing state talking points all the time. You go into RT, the only thing they talk about is shelling in uh, the Donetsk uh, Republic and the L- Luhansk Republic. Uh, if you go onto BBC, they'll only talk about the shelling that's going on in the opposite direction right? So it's that simple. In a situation of war, uh, the BBC is straight state pro- propaganda. Very little else will ever emerge on its platforms during a period of war or even just heightened diplomatic tension with a foreign power. It, it is as much a load of rubbish uh, as you will find at any point in, in history. Uh, non- non-stop shit uh, at the moment so it's very difficult to tell what's going to happen in a situation of that kind because we're getting just nonsense information constantly my suspicion is uh that there's still a good chance of uh a diplomatic solution perhaps there's no point in saying this because that could be disproved by the time this <laughs> this goes live
0: yeah well we um, be right or
1: wrong yeah like this could be could be one of the things uh I get it wrong, but, um, and I think that's been down, downplayed consistently because that seems to be the line. So that what, one of the most, uh, if you know any diplomatic history, you'll know that the first thing that a state does is say, uh, the enemy is definitely going for a war here. Because if they pull back, if, if, if they don't go to war, you can say, we scare them off. If they do go to war, you can say, oh, we, we knew this was coming anyway. You haven't pulled the will over our eyes. You look good either way. Whereas you have nothing to gain ever by saying war is unlikely in this situation, nothing to gain at all. You look kind of stupid, no matter what happens. Uh, so the the utterances of politicians at this point mean nothing. They're not, they're not, I mean, they are, they're engaged in, in strategic competition. They're not trying to tell anyone the truth. So it's very hard to see what's going to happen, but if there were a war, uh, there will be a savage backlash against people who criticise NATO in that situation. Uh, which is why you should your principal opposition should be to NATO in that situation. There's literally no fucking point whatsoever and you stouting about talking about what a bad man Putin is. Like, it, it achieves absolutely nothing. The only thing that it achieves is conformity, which is why some people will do it.
0: I mean, it, it just kind of uh, replays that loop that we were talking about earlier, the kind of tendency to see politics as goodies v baddies and that you pick the least worst one and cheer them on like a fucking football team. Part yeah. of, let's not forget, part of the reason that Biden is, you know, accelerating these tensions, part of the reason is because his approval ratings are in the, in toilet. the
1: toilet. yeah. And Same with-
0: the thing in the paper on Sunday and, like, I don't like it, it was just a random chance that that I picked this up um, an article uh, for USA Today um, that I'm just checking I'm just reading it here because I took a, a screenshot of it put Biden's approval rating at this point in his presidency at 41% approval and 53% disapproval and the corresponding ratings for Trump like at the same point in his presidency was 41.4 and 53.9 so just edging it but more or less the same and if you think of like that wave on which like Biden like was elected and it was all going to be different and all these promises that were made and how everything has just been catastrophic since like there has been like there's no hope, there's no reform, inflation is skyrocketing, standards of living are declining, like all of these things. Like part of the reason that he is pushing this is ultimately to do with 2024.
1: And that's part of Putin's motivation as well. In the in the recent Russian elections, um, Putin's party did terribly. I mean, they are partially rigged, and they had to increase the rigging because of his support's on the slide. Let's see someone comment that Putin and Biden are very similar figures in a lot of ways. They're both two ageing politicians past their best, and they both lead ageing empires past their best, um, and that the confrontation partially reflects those weaknesses uh, in both cases, uh, which I thought was fairly interesting. Um, but certainly, I don't think there's any question that it's partly to distract from Uh, increasing polarisation at home.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been guilty of it in the past, but I'm starting to view it with, like, a bit more cynicism, I guess, around, like, politicians' ages. Mm. Would this not be happening if the President of the United States of America was our age? I think it definitely would be happening. I I watched anyone of our age get into positions of political authority it would be fucking happening like it's not an age thing it's an ideology thing
1: so so no that's very true
0: also i will stand against elder abuse yeah as you know
1: and from the elderly to the uh to the very young our final issue of today
0: our final issue so you picked up this article in the new statesman which is titled The mystery isn't why the birth rate is falling. It's why anyone has kids at all.
1: So this has kind of been bubbling up a few times, and it's because the birth rate in Britain is continuing to slide, uh, as it is in very many Western countries and very many non-Western countries. Um, And there's a growing kind of debate about why people aren't having children. Um, God, it sounded a bit like children of men. Great film, I forgot about that film.
0: I watched it quite recently.
1: Yeah, it's excellent. Um, what I find most interesting about that film, by the way, is that it's a rare, accurate reflection, I think, of where politics is at. So I love that bit where everyone's been crammed into the, the ghetto, the kind of refugee ghetto for deportation or whatever. And there's a constant battle on the streets between, like, just various fragmented identity factions. Do you know what I mean? There's like Islamists and then there's like French nationalists and just various kind of identitarian blocks who have sort of carved up the society between them. Um, And it's just rare to get a reflection of that that's how how political division and polarisation now works. Um, But anyway, uh, Children of Men 2022... Uh, people are having fewer and fewer children. And of course, there's an inevitable debate about why this is happening. The right has traditionally been quite bug-eyed on this. You know what I mean? They'll say things like, oh, because the West has lost its kind of luster in some way, um, we're caving into foreigners or some shit, right? Or we need a good war. That was traditionally what the right said. You need a good war to remind people of the vitality of life and all this kind of stuff and the need to have babies. Um, now the left has kind of chipped in with its own bug-eyed prescriptions about about why uh, young women aren't having children. And the the response seems to be it's because we're terribly poor. Um, We've all become so poor and life has become so precarious. Um, And the future seems so bleak that people don't want to have children anymore. And I just think there's a slight problem with that theory which is our great-grandparents' generation had fucking tons of kids in slums without the NHS. And, do you know, what I mean, their expectation was that the kids would grow up also in a slum and then work in some, like, factory from the age of about 12 or something, right? There were plenty more reasons for people not to want to have kids in them days. Uh, but they had fucking tons of kids. So that's clearly a bogus prescription. The assumption is that, well, everyone knows that as society becomes more affluent, people have fewer and fewer kids. And that's not just true in the West anymore. Bizarrely, the birth rate in India is only slightly higher now than it is in the UK. Uh, You were saying just before we came on here, it's also extremely low in China. Mm. And everywhere, it tends to correspond to the same uh, developments a growing middle class, an expectation about lifestyle and about personal autonomy in a kind of consumer market, uh, that typically undermines the birth rate because people want to have their time to themselves. They want the freedom to do what they want to do and children impinge upon that situation. That is probably the biggest single driver. That's my assumption.
0: Yeah, I... I think that you're broadly right i think that there probably is a factor about that the like the generation that it's talking about which is that like late 20s early 30s group of women and um, because that generation is more likely than any before to still live with parents mm. as well. Um, you know still live at home still live with parents like not have moved out due to like various economic and social factors Um, you know there there will be a tendency to have children later but you know what I object to about these types of you know statistics being presented as some kind of you know liberating drive or like isn't it great that this is happening or this will help with climate change Mm. I find it objectionable because actually I think the idea of like a woman not having children because she's stuck at home with her parents because she can't afford to go anywhere else is really, really grim. And that these are actually symptoms of deep, deep alienation like, not just like economics or you know, the climate crisis, but deep psychological alienation and um, that that should be really worrying. Um, I mean, I'm all for people having babies. And um, I think that's, I think that is good for, I think it's actually probably, you know, my view, probably a personal view, is that it's good for the ego. <laughs> and it's good to try to uncouple yourself from being the center of the universe. And I'm sure that having a baby is probably quite a good way <laughs> to do that. And, um, you know, I think that it's, it's healthy to want to have children to have children and um, do you know what I mean I, I really do object to the kind of like the anti-motherhood tones that have definitely emerged in the last few years it's just another bloody swizz do you know what I mean it's like hey women like you know don't have kids because it's a liberating thing whereas actually it's don't have children so that you can continue to be a productive worker that mm. <laughs> you can continue to be a good consumer of youth culture it's it's just another swiss
1: in relation to these arguments about and by the way I should say I obviously think that society should do more to help parents right I actually think it's fucking terrifying uh, how little support young parents get in society I mean I think there should be uh more significant financial support i think that the culture we have around like uh, maternity leave is ridiculous i mean ideally i'm not you know ideally i think you should in a society see when someone has a kid right if they want to they should just be told like right that's that's you off work for the next three years it's kind of (laughs) ridiculous to have people going back to work three months or six months after they've had a kid. I just think that's just absurd. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And that obviously discourages people from having kids because that's really disruptive. Um, so, and I think there should just be much greater um, provision. I mean, the baby box thing's a bit of a joke. <laughs> like, I think there should be much like better, like child support because having kids is ridiculously expensive. And you're obviously discouraging people uh, from of course, having children course you
0: are because like you know my grandparents generation when you know this isn't true of everyone but the idea of like being able to I mean delete that the dream is really to be able to have a child and have a stay-at-home parent mm-hmm. right like that is like that's that would be like a a good thing like I in my view that would be as an option right not compulsory stay at home right but if you don't want to work and you want to engage in child reading that should be supported that should be something that is wholly encouraged but the chances of you having a partner or family who can financially support that option are very very slim it's very yeah. slim um, so i yeah there. are There are, as I said, like, there are economic and social reasons, but I also do think that it's being sold as a cultural signifier. The idea of remaining child-free is the expression now. Um, As as a choice, like, I think is being sold as a cultural signifier amongst predominantly the professional managerial class as some kind of, you know, extension or, you know, of, of feminism. It's that same type of, like, boardroom feminism um, that women have been—it's it, been it's like snake oil, do you know—and <laughs> like, that's what women are sold.
1: I think it's interesting that um, the ideas you used to get among feminists, like um, wages for housework, have kind of disappeared. And the reason I think they've disappeared is because there's a whole industry now around um, commercial childcare. So the expectation now. Is that workers will, for a wage, uh, you know, play a part in, in raising children, and demands tend to reflect that. So it might be things like more state provision of childcare. Um, but I think that the the former uh, demand is the better one, because I think that the demand should be. The best the best people to raise children. The, the best institution we have for doing that at the moment is the family.
0: Of course it is. Or but, I, I don't know if it's the best institution we have at the moment, to be honest, because the, like, the crisis of the family as a unit is, I mean, it's widespread. But in principle, like, I think there has been a, in order to, like, push, you know, this agenda of, like, you know, every, You know, getting people into the workforce and being productive citizens, being productive workers has really like eroded the family as the primary source of love and authority in a child's life. And increasingly that has been outsourced to state bureaucracies, like state childcare, the education system, welfare, uh, social work, these types of institutions. And I think that that is, I think that's a problem. Like I think it's a, I think it is a problem for society, and yeah, it's mostly been like, you know, the talking point on the right for a long time, but not yeah. exclusively.
1: I, 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 so the way I see it is the the engaged part, if you like, ought to be the family, and then the state's role in that situation isn't fundamentally kind of like social work or whatever, the state's role should be principally financial or organizational in the sense that um, the state delimits that you should have time aside from your working life to, to look after the children or whatever. It just I, just, I just find that an interesting travel, but we've gone from a situation where we say the state should uh, finance family life. That's basically what that, that form of demand is to a latter demand that focuses on the idea of the state should create uh, childcare for children, uh, which seems to me to just be a backward sort of step, really. The, the, the other point I wanted to make, though, was I can't help but feel that there's a, a, a strange thing now of like a weirdly economistic, almost kind of like crude materialist approach to all these questions. So, simply saying, when we know it's not the case, that the reason that people are having fewer and fewer kids is chiefly because they are now so poor or the world has become such a frightening place or whatever, you know, the world will be destroyed in 20 years' time or whatever. Um, It's almost as, I mean, you're in a weird position if you think of yourself as, you know, having a bearing on, on the Marxist tradition of having to defend the salience of ideas and culture. Like those are there are powerful motivating forces in our lives that are not straightforwardly economic right people fear a loss of status when they have children and I suspect that's a particularly acute fear for women women sort of um in our society sort of become disgusting overnight when they have children it's sort of like that's the famous thing it's like you're you're kind of a sex object, and then once you have kids, it's like, ugh, <laughs> you've sort of passed it. That kind of thing, like, this is the thing, like, we need a different impression of who people are and and the roles that people should be playing in society and, and um, what we should aspire to if you want to reverse the trends in the declining uh, population. By the way, it will have to be reversed sooner or later. I mean, there are countries uh, now in Europe where the population uh, is rapidly dwindling and the consequ- consequences are terrible economically, but also socially and politically. I'm thinking of countries like uh, Hungary and Italy, where there's an obvious relationship between the declining birth rate and the rise of authoritarian um, political tendencies. So it, it is a matter. You can't we, can't we can't become a society where people aren't having kids, right? But the the response to that needs to be economic, on one hand. I think it, like people need to be protected. I mean, it can make you seriously fucking poor. Like it's dangerous. Do you know what I mean? To have kids if you're at a certain level in the in the income scale. But there the, there are wider changes in things like culture. Like we need we need to aspire to different things than we currently do. And what, like what you said about, I mean, it's a fairly. I mean, it. it Everyone I know who have kids, uh they kind of arrive in your life like a bombshell. Do you know what I mean? And I I get that it is extremely stressful. But I do understand what you say when there's there's a certain appeal in just not being the center of your own universe anymore. Uh it it takes a certain pressure off you. Uh, and, and for there to be someone whose needs always have to come first and so on. Yeah,
0: and you can project all
1: your neurosis onto another person. You can fuck up their brain completely. <laughs> you can. Yeah, you can turn them into a a miniature version of the of the train wreck that is yourself.
0: I mean that's that's the only goal that I would have as a parent is like um you know just like for the child to be like more stable than I am. Do you know what I mean?
1: I know, I know, but it's so it's If I can
0: raise a child that is less mental (laughs) and neurotic than me, then that is that's a huge achievement.
1: I is fraught though, right? Because <clears throat> I grew up, I imagine, in better circumstances than I am likely to provide a child, right? This is the kind of like worry that plagues me.
0: This is your 4 a.m.
1: worries. <laughs> I'm wide awake at 4 a.m. Um, but so do you know what I mean? But there are so many like middle class and rich fuck ups. So what can you do? Do you know what I mean? Like and also like if you if you know anything about human psychology, you know that someone can be like completely scarred for life because they once wet themselves in a classroom in primary one or something, right? And fucking mental because of it. I
0: I remember the kids who wet themselves in primary three so clearly. I can remember it was like like it was yesterday.
1: Um to an individual
0: wasn't
1: me. (laughs) To an individual, they are all now serial killers. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, but do, uh, that that does haunt me a bit that you're, you you can never be in complete control of like the formation of this psyche.
0: I think you probably just have to let go. You know what I mean? Which why? But that's why things like oh my god, I've gone full fucking trad on this episode. But that's why things like religion can be important to people do I mean it gives you a sense of like you're not in control you're not the center of the universe you can't plan for everything sometimes you just got to leave it in God's paws. <laughs> for those not on the on the YouTube David is now wielding a crucifix <laughs>
1: um yeah have you had the good news this this entire conversation has just been a preamble to you hearing the good news of the gospel he, he is risen <laughs>
0: wasn't to be fair that wasn't my point right my point was like something like religion or something like an extended eh, or higher ideal like whether that's christ or socialism or whatever like you know having a bigger concept than yourself can really help one relinquish the idea that you're a master of your own fate Mm. or your child's fate i mean in a way you you are like I mean, I'm not advocating just letting it roam free.
1: And on that trad pill.
0: <laughs> on that trad pill, I'm going to go. Well, actually, on that trad pill, my husband's cooking me dinner. So.
1: Uh, the modern world.
0: I know. I know. And it's a salad.
1: Oh, geez.
0: My husband's making me a salad. See, we are very modern over here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. I this is this has been a, a a long episode, but I think the listeners deserve it because of our past transgressions. I don't
0: know. I think it might be more of like a a punishment. Yeah. I mean, extra extra waffle, extra shape pattern. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed, um, and we'll see you soon.
1: See you soon. Stop recording.